Hello, Charles Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Today, we're going to start our program with a story about hair. When I was about to graduate from high school, I decided to go natural. This is Annabelle Grouillon. She's a musician and teacher from Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. One of the reasons was the fact that I was spending more time at the hair salon than playing the piano, which was something fun for me to do at that time. Annabelle naturally has curly, kinky hair, but like most Dominicans, she grew up being told she had to constantly go to the salon and straighten it with chemicals if she wanted to have quote-unquote good hair. I was in the soccer team and I had to go to soccer practice and then on the next day go to the beauty salon because my hair was a mess from soccer practice. And then two days later I had soccer practice again. So two days after that I had to go to the salon again to keep my hair straight and beautiful and, and all that. And it was tiring to keep up with that. And at the beginning it didn't bother me so much, but then I realized that it was actually a decision made for me. Annabelle felt her parents, her friends, everyone around her was pressuring her to straighten her hair. My mom was always like, hey, tiene que ir al salón. Until one day, Annabelle said, enough. At the beginning of my senior year, I told my family, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, I'm old enough to make this decision for myself, to decide how I want to look, how do I want to feel about myself. Today, Annabelle sports a big curly afro and she says she feels great about it. You may be asking yourself, hmm, why are we talking about hair? Well, it's because on the island of Hispaniola, hair is about more than hair. Believe it or not, it's linked to the relationship between the two countries that share the island, the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and how those two countries feel about their African roots. When you look around the Caribbean, Dominican Republic is probably one of the fewest that does not embrace their blackness. Blackness is always related to Haitians. They don't see blackness in anything from them. So the whole straight hair is like European, like, uh, you know, trying to be who you're not. And I think that one of the reasons why there's so much hatred is because the Haitians embrace blackness like nobody else. And so, of course, they represent everything that the Dominican has always tried to tame. And that is the theme of today's show. One Caribbean island, two countries, the lines that divide them, and the music that often unites them. Coming up on this Hip Deep edition, a special collaboration with the public radio program Latino USA, we're going to dive into the relationship between the two countries through history, politics, identity, and of course, culture. We'll travel to both Haiti and the DR to speak with scholars, experts, and musicians. Visit a community of sugarcane cutters in the DR, where the two cultures blend seamlessly. And talk to young people who are changing the narrative about race and identity. All that and more on An Island Divided, 
But first, a song to kick things off. A little known fact is that Tabu Combo, probably the most famous Haitian band of all time, often recorded songs in Spanish. This song was a hit in the Dominican Republic about a topic everybody can relate to, inflation. Here's Inflacion from Tabu Combo. dinero tendrá siempre más y más inflación en general inflación mata a la gente y el que no tiene dinero será pobre hasta la muerte I'm Georges Collinet with An Island Divided on Afropop Worldwide. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. Okay, so the basics. Hispaniola is the second biggest island in the Caribbean after Cuba. Over 20 million people live there. On the west side of the island is Haiti, and on the east, the Dominican Republic. And like many neighbors, they haven't always gotten along. And just a side note, for today's episode, we're going to focus more on the Dominican side of this relationship, because you could say it's the more complicated side. Marlon Bishop, a longtime Afropop producer and now a reporter for the NPR program Latino USA, visited Haiti and the Dominican Republic to find out how the two countries see each other. Here's Marlon. I arrived to Hispaniola on the Haitian side, to Port-au-Prince, the capital. And like any good radio producer would do, the first place I decided to visit was the radio station. So why don't you tell me who you are to, to begin? Okay, my name is Richard Widmeyer. I am the uh, general manager of Radio NTD Metropole. Richard's grandfather migrated to Haiti from Germany. He opened the country's first commercial radio station back in 1936. And the family stayed in the broadcast business ever since. We do sports, music, and news. And I asked him, from his perspective, about the relationship between the DR and Haiti. Politically and historically speaking, between the two countries, there, there is that mutual fear that one will control the other. On the Dominican side these days, he says, it's a fear of mass immigration of Haitians and the loss of control in a demographic sense. 
Today, an estimated half a million Haitians live in the DR, many working in construction or other low-wage jobs. And on the Haitian side, Richard says, there's a different fear of domination. And uh, the recent example was we had a hurricane last year, Hurricane Matthew, that hit the south, and the Dominicans came with help for us, you know, food and medication and what have you. That relief was brought by a Dominican military convoy. And as they arrived here, there was an uproar in Haiti since saying, you know, we don't want these people, we don't want them here, only for the fact that they were being accompanied by military personnel from the Dominican Republic. And that was to them seen as a threat. Some even were to use the word occupation. That's on the political level. But mostly, he says, ordinary Haitians are disinterested in the Dominican Republic. They go there often to work or study, but that's it. We do not consume a lot of uh, what is being produced in the Dominican Republic in terms of culture. In terms of politics, we hardly know what is being done over there. Of course, we know what happens in Russia and in the United States, of course, in France. We love French politics. Yet, right next door, we don't know. You know, um, it would be interesting, you know, to do a survey in the streets and ask Haitians, who is the president in the Dominican Republic today? And you might be surprised, you know, you couldn't get a good answer. The Dominican president, in case you were curious, is Danilo Medina. I had to Google it. Next up, I visited a famous bar and music venue, Bar de Lair. It's where Sweet Mickey got started playing. He's the pop star who was recently the president of Haiti. Uh, we've been open since 36 years now. There I spoke with Frédéric Cusso, who runs the place. There was a time where we were like the example in the Caribbean. The Dominican Republic used to copy us. It's true. Haiti, for much of the history, was the more prosperous nation of the two. Dominicans envied their imported goods and cosmopolitan ways and so on. But in the 1930s or so, they switched places. And now the DR is a much wealthier nation. The thing is, right now, we don't have food, so we import a lot of things from them. And we hope that one day we'll be the most dominant country on the island. So it feels like a little bit of a battle. Yeah, there's a battle. Yeah, there's a battle. Have you ever go there? Have you ever been? Oh, yeah. We go, like, for visit, vacation. It's like us, but uh, a better version. Wow. For now. (laughs) For now. Not better. (laughs) Well, I'll have to say better because you have all the resort, you have all these nice things, and I, I, I would suggest you to go see, to go visit it. I took Frederic's advice and crossed over to the other side of the island. To get there, I took an international coach bus, about an eight hour ride. At the border, Dominican soldiers ushered everyone out to check our luggage and passports. They were often pretty rough with the Haitian passengers, pushing and speaking rudely. There's a lot of tension these days in the DR on the topic of Haitian immigrants. A lot of it has to do with a court ruling that basically took away citizenship from the descendants of Haitians who are living in the country, even those that are born in the DR. As we approached Santo Domingo, the capital, we passed a billboard paid for by a right-wing Dominican politician. It read in Spanish, a country without a border isn't a country. It's time to build a wall. In Santo Domingo, I met up with an old friend, Joel Martin. He's a musician and professor in the National Conservatory. And I asked him for his take on the DR-Haiti relationship. You know, it's like Mexico and United States, like where you could say it's very tense, but you have many millions of Mexicans living in California. You have Mexican culture in the US. So even if this, it's tense, they're living together. 
The way Joel sees it, it's mostly the Dominican elites who look down at Haitians, not the working people. And he says the main reason for this is the way Dominicans are educated. You know, if in the schools they taught us about the moments in history where the countries work together, it will be much easier. But we're only taught about the moments that divide us. For example, textbooks in the DR don't talk about the time in 1863 that Haitians and Dominicans joined forces to kick the Spanish off the island. But they do talk about the times that Haitians and Dominicans fought against each other. Specifically, they made mention of cutting the heads of Dominicans. So they really tell you that when you're a child, and it really sticks to you, that image of the Haitian with the machete cutting your head. So do you think that there's like a, a, a better story between the two countries that's possible? Oh, definitely. But it seems like every time it's getting better and something happens to shake it off. So how did things between the DR and Haiti get to be this way? My name is Edward Paulino, and I am proudly a historian. Edward is the author of a book titled Dividing Hispaniola about this very topic, and he's one of our scholarly guides for this episode. And he says, to understand this relationship, you have to start at the moment that colonization began. Santo Domingo was the first ever European colony in the Americas, founded in 1496 by the Spanish. It was where the first church in the Americas was built, the first university, and it's where transatlantic slavery began. The first time Africans that we know of arrived in the Americas was in Hispaniola, the island of Hispaniola, but particularly on the eastern part. That's where the first sugar was grown in the Americas. And so when you talk about black history in the Americas, you have to start in the Dominican Republic. So soon after settling in what is today the DR, the Spanish got distracted by all the shiny gold and silver in their other colonies in Mexico and South America. And Santo Domingo became a kind of backwater. The French took advantage of this power vacuum and set up shop on the other side of the island, the part that would eventually become Haiti. They brought many more enslaved Africans to cut sugarcane and made French plantation owners into very rich men. Then in 1804, something unprecedented happened. Slaves in the French colony of Saint-Domingue began a revolution. They kicked out the French and created the free nation of Haiti. But with the Spanish still on the island, they weren't really safe. Understandably, Haiti was afraid of slavery being restored again. So in 1822, Haiti invaded and annexed the Spanish side of the island. The Spanish weren't so happy about this, and eventually they fought the Haitian army back. And so by 1844, you have this already burgeoning idea of Dominicanness expelling Haitians. So the DR wins independence from Haiti, but Dominican elites are scared of being occupied by Haiti again. So they voluntarily give the country back to Spain, you know, to kind of protect them in case the Haitians invade. But then they change their mind a few years later and they fight for independence again, this time against the Spanish with Haiti as an ally. What's interesting is that to this day of the two options of independence days they could celebrate, the DR celebrates its independence not from Spain, but from Haiti. Okay, now fast forward to the 1910s. U.S. Marines invade and occupy both Haiti and the DR for years to quote-unquote protect American interests on the island. They bring with them jazz and racism. Okay, now fast forward again to the 1930s. An army man in the DR, trained by American Marines, rises to power as a dictator. 
His name is Rafael Trujillo, and he's very anti-Haitian, even though... His maternal grandmother, Dijeta Chevalier, was herself Haitian. At first, he appears to get along really well with Haiti. He visits President Vonsant in Haiti. There's a lot of goodwill. In fact, the song you're hearing right now was written by a Haitian band in honor of President Trujillo and recorded in 1936 by Alan Lomax when he visited the island. But in 1937, Trujillo, out of seemingly nowhere, does something terrible. He sends his soldiers to massacre Haitians and their descendants living in the DR, mostly in the border area. An estimated 15,000 men, women, and children, ethnic Haitians, were targeted by the Dominican military. They were rounded up and they were summarily uh, executed. The killings were ordered to be done with machetes instead of guns. This event later would become known as the Perejil Massacre. In retrospect, it's clear this was a case of mass murder, of ethnic cleansing, and I argue it falls under the UN definition of genocide. And so up to this point, there had been some conflict between the two countries, but there were also periods of peace and collaboration. But after the massacre, the narrative starts to change. Trujillo capitalized on this historically but diffuse notion of Haiti as the outsider, as the enemy. And he uses the massacre and then to crystallize this official doctrine that Haitians are eternal enemies. Well, let's be plain. Trujillo was a fascist. He wasn't much of a book guy. So, he got his intellectuals to write books about Dominican history and culture, all with an anti-Haitian lens. In these writings, Haitians were portrayed as inferior, weak-minded, and cruel. Trujillo was assassinated in 1961, bringing his dictatorship to an end. But the anti-Haitian attitudes of his regime set the stage for anti-Haitianism in the DR today. That's the history as told through politics. But if you look at music and culture, another history reveals itself. One where Haitians and Dominicans are far more connected. Testing one, two, three. This is Paul Ostelitz, an expert on music in Hispaniola. He wrote the book, literally, on the most famous style of Dominican music, merengue. First of all, merengue, originally in the 19th century, was a genre that was generalized throughout the Caribbean. Even though today we think of merengue as Dominican music, it used to be played in Cuba and Puerto Rico as well. There is also a form of merengue called merengue in Haiti. This recording is an example of Haitian merengue by pianist Fabre Durozo. Related styles of music were being played on both sides of the island. But 
We would not probably be talking about Dominican merengue today, right now, if it hadn't been for the dictator Trujillo. Trujillo was a paradox. He was part Haitian, but he killed Haitians. He persecuted religious practitioners of voodoo, but he also practiced voodoo. And even though he had Eurocentric ideology, he was a fan of merengue, a style with Afro-Dominican roots. The kind of merengue that was promoted by the Trujillo regime sounded a little like this. This is the band of Angel Viloria. So merengue was basically the official music of the Trujillo regime. Now, he never made a decree saying that, but he supported it and he mandated that merengue bands sing in praise of his dictatorship. And he made it into a big thing. Trujillo had several merengue orchestras that played at his bidding. One was Super Orquesta San Jose. This song is called San Rafael, or Saint Raphael. One of the many songs written about the dictator's supposedly heroic qualities. Bands like this one received state support from Turillo. Because of that support, merengue spread to the United States already in the 50s, and it spread to Haiti because of radio broadcasts and recordings. And this 1950s form of Dominican merengue influenced Haitian popular music in the 1950s under the um, aegis of a band leader whose name was Nemours Jean-Baptiste. 
Nemo Jean-Baptiste, who is known as the father of Compa, Richard Wichmeyer, who runs Radio Metropole in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, tells the story this way. Nemo Jean-Baptiste traveled to the Dominican Republic and uh, heard the Dominican merengue. So what he did when he came back, he just slowed it down and it went and he added the gong to it. And that created the compa. I don't have the right words to explain. I, I use my... <laughs> so uh, everybody knows that's what Nemo did. Nemur called this music compa direct, which means direct beat. And it sounded something like this. That's Navoy Bayo with Nemour Jean-Baptiste, the father of Compa music. Compa became the dance music of Haiti and still is today. So that's an example of Dominican influence in Haitian music. But Haiti was present in Dominican music as well. I was really struck in my research by one traditional merengue that was performed by a group that was sponsored by Trujillo in the 1950s called El Trio Reynoso. And it's called Pacone. Pacone means in Haitian Creole, I don't know. And the song, which is just a traditional merengue song, sung primarily in Spanish, says, where is Belie Belcan? Belie Belcan is a Dominican voodoo spirit. And the answer is Pacone in Haitian Creole, I don't know. Where is Gandela? Pacone, I don't know. It goes through this list of voodoo spirits, and always the answer is, I don't know, I don't know. So this song that was recorded during the height of the Trujillo era, first of all, it's talking about voodoo in an open way, even though voodoo had been outlawed by Trujillo. But more interesting than that, the song is saying, where is he, where is he? I don't know, I don't know, I don't see him, but he's there anyway. And a friend of mine said to me that, oh, that's because voodoo in the Dominican Republic is mute culture. It's culture, but it doesn't speak because the speech has been censored. You're not allowed to speak that. 
it was dangerous to say that under the regime of Trujillo. But in that song, El Trio Reynoso could talk about it. But they were even talking about it by saying, I don't know, it doesn't exist. And I'll go farther. I mean, there's this hidden language, a mute language, a non-spoken language, that when one learns it, one starts seeing African religion you know, all over the Dominican Republic. And music is one of the primary ways that these traditions speak. Now, one reason that African culture is mute in the DR it's because anti-Haitian attitudes are connected to anti-Black and anti-African attitudes there as well. You see, Dominicans are mostly of African ancestry, more so than, say, Cubans or Brazilians. But that ancestry is often denied. Dominicans developed a European identity in opposition to Haiti's proud Afrocentric identity, Edward Paulino says that this identity isn't really about racism, but a kind of survival strategy for the DR. Dominican elites have always had to see Haiti in relation with the United States, because the United States has slavery, and these black people here, Haitians, abolish slavery. We're also seen as black, regardless of what we might think of ourselves. Then what does that mean? I have to make sure I convey as much of a Western sensibility to the West. Well, because the West is where the power and the money is. There's a denial of African heritage here. People don't, they don't want to see it, even the people that are even clearly African descendants. Tony Vicioso is a roots musician from the DR, and he says that Dominicans have seen how much Haiti has suffered over the years for challenging white supremacy. And that's a big part of why they often don't identify as black. And the whole mindset of the Dominican people, it makes it harder to grow in the ways that they think that they should be growing, you know, to develop, like, economically, for instance. Haiti is much more clear, you know, with where they're at, who they are. You know, here, it's like they want to be Europeans, even dark people want to look at other dark people and call them black. And they're black too, you know, so it's like, it's weird, it's really weird. If you talk negatively about what you are, you know, it's going to create this weird thing. <laughs> it has to be weird. This is An Island Divided, the story of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Coming up on Afropop Worldwide, we're going to dive into the world of voodoo culture in the two countries and visit a community in sugarcane country. Plus, of course, lots of great music. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. 
So, in addition to music, religion is another way the DR and Haiti are connected. In Haiti, many people practice voodoo, a local religion with roots in West Africa. In the Dominican Republic, people practice Los 21 Divisiones, or the 21 Divisions. These are not the same traditions, but they are related. Both are practices that mix African spiritism with Catholicism. Both involve spirit possession, and many of the same spirits are venerated in both countries. When Marlon Bishop of NPR's Latino USA was in the Dominican Republic researching this program, he got a chance to visit one of the most famous devotional parties in the country and learn more about how Dominicans relate to music, the spirit, and race. Here is Marlon. Bani is a city located a few hours from the capital. And there, every year, a woman on the outskirts of town named Doña Hilda throws a big party in honor of San Juan Bautista, or St. John the Baptist. While I was there, I ran into Martha. I'm Martha Ellen Davis. I'm an anthropologist and ethnomusicologist. And I've been observing this tradition of the Brotherhood of St. John the Baptist since 1972. Responsibility for putting together this party has been passed down through a single family for many years. And Martha says if you ask the family how it began, they'll say this. This devotion was started when a fellow named Pio Bisco Martinez went to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, when there was really no border, you know, so very fluid. And he went to sell uh, cattle. And he saw this beautiful saint. That is a small statue of a saint. Pio Visco asked, how much for this saint? 25 pairs of oxen, the seller said. And so he bought it. He bought the saint, the little saint that we see in the altar, which is a, a manifestation of St. John the Baptist as a child. That saint has been passed down through the generations, and today it's at the center of the altar in the family chapel, surrounded by religious icons and candles. On the morning of the party, people gather and sing salves to the saint. It's a Catholic ritual, but not a straight-up Spanish Catholic one. The family that puts this together is one of the last of the cofradías, religious brotherhoods that were founded during slavery as mutual aid societies, and mixed together African and Catholic spiritual ideas. So in this case, says Martha, St. John the Baptist takes on characteristics of the Yoruba deity Shango. After the ceremony in the morning, things start to heat up a little bit. This party is complete with its very own music style, played nowhere else in the world, the sarandunga. It's performed on a guira, the metal scraper found in basically all Dominican music, and three short drums. And it has its own special repertoire of songs and dances.
there are three parties like this that happen over the course of a week in the area. And all this happens without any kind of support whatsoever. Hiring the musicians, preparing the altar, feeding the hundreds of people who come to enjoy the party. It's expensive and put together by a family with very few resources. But they do it because there's a spiritual commitment to St. John. All of this is to please the saint on some way, right? They, they do it as part of their family tradition, but they're also afraid of the saint. He's powerful. Well, here's a little story that I just, the head of the Brotherhood, La Capitana, just told me. She said, Doña Bitinia, I think her name is, little bitty woman who would come every year without fail, dressed in red and white, and I didn't see her on the 23rd. I thought, well, maybe she's ill. Well, now the Capitana just told me that she died last night. Oh, my goodness. She said, well, she had converted, i.e. become Protestant. And she burned everything in her altar. So you see, San Juan struck her down. The saints give health and they give illness. Many Dominicans, especially wealthier ones from the city, look at this music and religion and say, oh, that's Haitian stuff. But it's not. These are Afro-Dominican traditions, which are related to, but separate from Haitian traditions. One person described it to me as a kind of feedback loop. There are hundreds of years of culture moving back and forth across the border, influencing each other. But there's at least one cultural manifestation in the DR that truly is a hybrid Haitian-Dominican creation. It's called Gaga. Where are we going? ¿Dónde estamos yendo? Now we are going to uh, Batey La Ceja. One Saturday morning while I'm in the DR, I ride with Eddie Sanchez. He's a Dominican percussionist and anthropologist and holds a position with the Ministry of Culture. We ride down a dirt road in the eastern part of the country, surrounded by endless skinny stalks of sugarcane. Los haitianos no, no habían tanto en los barrios como hay ahora. Eddie explains to me that back in the day, there weren't as many Haitians living in Dominican cities as there are today. Starting in the 1930s, the owners of sugar mills started to bring over Haitians to work in the fields cutting sugar cane. They would come during the harvest, cut cane, and when the work was done, they'd return to Haiti until the next harvest. But over the years, many of them stayed and raised families in the DR. The communities where they live are called bates. They're hidden away in the middle of the cane fields, and they're basically company towns, completely owned by the sugar mills. As we arrive at Bate La Ceja, Eris points out the houses. Esas casas pertenecen al ingenio, aunque la habiten las personas que están aquí. Por eso tuve que tienen como un mismo formato de construcción. They're small cement homes, all the same size and equally spaced apart, as if on a grid. Hola. Mira, la casa de esta está esa aquí. Esa, ¿verdad? Okay, We're here to visit Tata, the leader of this Gaga. He's an older man with bright eyes and a big gray mustache. Mucho gusto. Un placer conocerle a usted. ¿Cómo está? Muy bien, muy bien. Yo nací de aquí mismo en la República, pero me dice Tata como una mujer que me pega ese nombre. Tata is actually a nickname. His real name is Marco. He says he was born here, and he's lived all his life in the Bate. His parents came here from Haiti, where he's never actually been. Tata says people used to come and go from Haiti a lot, but not anymore. 
A lot of the people here, even the ones born here, don't have any kind of documentation that says they're citizens of the DR. And if they left, they wouldn't be able to get back in unless they wanted to sneak in with smugglers. Tata goes on to explain how things in the Bate work. The company owns all the houses. There's water, but no electricity. All the men who live here have to work, and it's back-breaking work. 30 days a month, 12 hours a day. At the end of the week, a worker might make a thousand pesos, the equivalent of $20. Often, the money is barely enough to buy food to eat. Then, during the off-season, they're not paid at all. The people who live here don't have very much materially, but they do have the gaga. He explains that Gaga originally comes from Haiti, where it's known as Rara. But before that, he says, it came from Africa, from the Congo region. And he explains that Gaga starts with a promise, a promise to a spirit. The promise is to serve the spirit, and you do that by performing an elaborate ritual with many steps throughout the year, and which culminates with a musical parade that happens every Easter. Tata explains for us the various preparations for the Gaga. There are ceremonies with specific songs. There are meals that have to be prepared and offered to the spirits in specific ways. I asked Tata, all this knowledge about what to do, where does it come from? He says sometimes it comes from the spirits themselves. They'll visit him in a dream and tell him what he has to do. After all the preparations are done and Easter arrives, it's time to play the music of Gaga. The Gaga is made up of many people, each with their own role. There's drummers, dancers, and most uniquely, the people playing fututos, trumpets made out of cane or PVC pipe. Each trumpet only plays one note, and the musicians play them in these interlocking patterns that create these eerie, beautiful melodies. June Rosenberg, an American ethnomusicologist, was among the first people to do an academic study of Gaga in the late 70s. In her book on the topic, she pronounced that Gaga was a form of Dominican culture, not just Haitian. And this was scandalous to say at the time. Anti-Haitianism was still heavily espoused by the state. How could something made by Haitian cane cutters be Dominican? But without a doubt, Gaga in the Dominican Republic has morphed into something different from what it was in Haiti. There are different instruments used, different rituals, and different songs sung in Spanish instead of Creole. It's a hybrid culture, proof that no matter how hard the politicians have tried, they can't keep Haiti and the DR from blending together. At least not completely. Gaga has also been a big inspiration for the alternative art and music community in the DR, in part because celebrating the Dominican connection to Haiti is kind of a rebellious thing to do. For example, take this song by Xiomara Fortuna and Rita Indiana. It's called Na e Na. 
todo flow y power pa' gozar Y para bien el mundo entero piensa igual Para bien el mundo entero piensa igual Porque el mundo que nada From Xiomara Fortuna and Rita Indiana, that was Na Ena. After Trujillo's death and the dictatorship was over, people in the DR had a little more freedom in how they could express themselves. A movement of Dominican roots music took shape in the 1970s and continues until this day. And that movement started as a kind of a Dominican branch of Nueva Trova, or Nueva Cancion music, which was a leftist form of music that developed in Latin America at that time. And the idea behind Nueva Trova was to make protest music based on music of the working class. Because the working class in the Dominican Republic is primarily black, that focus on working people's music and rural peasant music as a banner of resistance to imperialism kind of eventually, gradually, sort of became an Afro-Dominican movement. Of course, Haiti has its own roots music scene, known as Racine. The most famous Racine band still active today is Bookman Experience. This is their classic 1991 song, Pop music in Haiti and the DR have continued to influence each other over the years. In fact, This very song by Bookman Experience was covered by a merengue band in the DR and became a huge hit. Diomedes y el Grupo Mio took the chorus and turned it into Esto se incendio. Ultimo guay, ya que está bien es por 
Incendio by Diomedes El Grupo Mio. And there are more famous examples. For example, the music of Wilfrido Vargas. Wilfrido is one of the biggest Dominican merengue stars of all time. And he was a big fan of Asian compa music. Here is Paul Austerlitz. And some of his big hits were just reworkings of Haitian compa songs, which was interesting because compa was so influenced by merengue. And then Wilfrido's merengue was influenced by compa. And in fact, in my interview with Wilfrido Vargas, I asked him, I said, wow, you, you seem to have been interested in Haitian music. And he said, yes, because Haitian music is the most transcendent music in the Caribbean. Take, for example, one of Wilfrido's biggest hits of all, El Jardinero. Tengo un jardín de rosas, hermosas. Tengo un jardín de rosas. The song is a cover of two different Haitian songs stuck together. One of them was Barrier by the band DP Express. Let's hear a little of it. That was Barrier by DP Express. So, over the course of this show, we've looked at the difficult relationship between the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and also how music has often transcended that relationship. But what's next for the DR and Haiti? Well, Marlon Bishop from Latino USA brings us to Santo Domingo one last time to answer that question. On one of my last nights in Santo Domingo, I decided to go to a free outdoor concert being held in the old city, in the Plaza España. 
It was the closing concert of a free summer festival, and given the political tension, you might find it surprising who is playing. The band was Bukman Experians, the great roots band from Haiti we heard about earlier. started their set with a stylized voodoo ritual, the dancers slowly walking out onto stage holding prayer candles. The crowd included some Haitian immigrants, but also lots of young Dominicans dancing and obviously loving the band. Jose Carlos Oviedo is a percussionist and the owner of a local music venue. He says anti-Haitianism is a trick that politicians use to cover up other things. But in reality, the people aren't against Haitians. It's more of a residue that we have to finish getting rid of. And in certain circles in the DR, more educated liberal ones, that seems to be the attitude, that racism and xenophobia towards Haitians belongs in the past. Of course, this is not the only narrative. By most accounts, anti-Haitian attitudes have been on the rise. Which is very sad in my view. Paul Austerlitz again. There's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment there, which has been stoked by the Dominican right wing. It's very similar to the rhetoric that Trump, you know, similar to his rhetoric. The interesting thing is that it predates <laughs> Trump's rise. But at the same time, Paul says he sees subtle changes in Dominican society. For example, people in the countryside seem to be more open about practicing Afro-Dominican religion and playing Afro-Dominican music. Women all over the country are ditching the salon and joining the natural hair movement. There's black models on billboards with afros and box braids. All signs that the anti-black attitudes of the past might be fading, if a little slowly. And Paul, for one, has hope for the future. And maybe this is romantic, and maybe it's just wishful thinking. But I do believe that deep down, Dominicans, Haitians know that they share common African and European roots. They share a common land. And somewhere deep down, these bridges are being built through music. Well, thank you, Marlon. And speaking of that, we're going to close our show with a song. This comes from Carolina Camacho, a young artist in the Afro-Dominican movement. The song is called Palo de Colores, and in the song she talks about all the colors within her, the white and the black, and how neither is better than the other.
de Colores by Carolina Camacho. And that's it for today's show. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International Affiliate Stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from Womex, the conference, marketplace, and showcase dedicated to roots and world music, October 25th to the 29th in Katowice, Poland. More info at womex.com. Thanks to Paula Stolitz, Eduardo Paulino, Joel Martin, Tony Vicioso, and Jimena Conde for their help with this program. Visit afropop.org for extended interviews and music recommendations. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. This episode was a collaboration with the public radio program Latino USA, who will be putting out their own episode all about the Haitian massacre of 1937 in October, so look out for that. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Marlon Bishop. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast series, Afropop Close-Ups. Profiles, stories, and cultural conundrums from our African planet. From the producers of Afropop Worldwide. Season 1 is underway now. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Stephanie LeBeau. Benning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director for new media is Akornefa Achea. And I'm Georges Collinet. PRI Public Radio International.